Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, March the 14th. I hope that you and yours are doing well. We continue in our look at Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, this week beginning chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the ESV, Put on the New Self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy pleasing and acceptable in your sight, Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In our last study, in our last look at Colossians, we saw the quote-unquote siren song, if you will, of theological era that was threatening to deprive the Colossian Christians, depriving them of vitality and vigor in their faith. And today, 2,000 years later, the same era, is luring fellow believers, is, is a temptation for us into spiritual slavery by offering us the, the secret, quote-unquote, of fulfilled human potential. But in chapter 3, Paul once again reveals in even more precise detail the true way to, quote-unquote, be all that you can be. That's three times I've already used, quote-unquote. The true human potential movement. Listen to his opening words. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Twice in this short section, Paul urges us to set our minds and our hearts on things above where Jesus is sealed at the right hand of God. At first glance, it's, it's hard to tell who are Christians in this world. We're, we're ordinary people. But according to the scriptures, and in actual experience, confirmed again and again in our lives, being a believer means we, we have an extra dimension, if you will, to life. There's a hidden resource, an invisible reality, which the world does not have, and for that matter, it cannot see. And this is not referring to Christ up in heaven, sort of lost in space somewhere. Rather, this is refers to what Paul has talked about earlier in this letter and that we keep coming back to again and again and again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This extra dimension is not 
far removed in the reaches of space. It, it's right here. It's right within our heart. It's, it's an untouchable, invisible dimension that is within us. This is the glory of the, of the life in Christ. And that, that's the secret of its power, of its joy and its courage. Set your hearts on this hidden resource is, is Paul's um, imploring, right? He, he means our affections. Think with an affectionate gratitude of what Jesus has already done for us and what he is to us. This is not a, a form of escapism. It's not something we try to keep our mind on all day long to the exclusion of everyday life, of business, of family, of home. It is rather that when our mind is occupied with our family, with, with business or whatever, we also bring into it this extra thing. Christ is part of that situation because he is in all. That's what Paul means when he says your life is hid with Christ in God. Jesus is involved with our activities. So we have to remind ourselves that whatever we're involved in includes also the person of Jesus himself. His wisdom, his power and knowledge are available to us. So that's what Paul means. It ought to be Oh, it ought to awaken our loving gratitude. I had an old Sunday school teacher who used to remind us that, you know, we take Jesus with us wherever it is we go, uh, on the athletic field, on dates, to the movies, whatever. Jesus is in us. He is a part of us. But not only our affections, but we're also to set our mind on things above. Things within would be maybe a, a better translation. Paul is talking about our wills, our choices. So decide to do what we know from knowledge of the word of, of, the, of God that he wants us to do. That's the secret of a life that has discovered how to really live. Our life, our daily activity, our thoughts are now tied to Jesus. So we do wrong if we separate ourselves from him. We belong to him. The old, godless, self-directed life is over. The God of self is done if we become a Christian, a believer. God is moving toward a new age. That is a fact. And that's why the new age movement is close to the truth, but it's not the truth. There is a new age coming. Scripture affirms this. God is already at work producing it. It has begun within us. The kingdom is now. It is the yet and the not yet. But it is invisible to the world around us. One of these days, that curtain's going to be lifted because Paul puts it beautifully in chapter 8 of Romans. The whole universe, universe is standing on tiptoe, craning its neck, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That is the goal God is moving toward in this world. We see all the darkness, the despair. We see the trials, the hurt all around us. But God sees a purpose that is developing more and more moving toward a certain accomplishment that's going to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. So to sum this all up, Paul is saying that we are to continually remember who we are now, who we once were but no longer are, and who we will be when Christ returns. That is the true basis for living a Christian life. Scripture calls it, and we call it, walking with the Lord. I like to imagine a walk. Because a walk, of course, means it merely consists of two simple steps repeated over and over again. You know, walking, it's not a complicated thing. In the same way, the Christian life is a matter of taking 
two steps, one step, one after another. We begin to walk, and, and those two steps follow in this passage, and Paul describes them as put off the old man and put on the new. Then simply repeat, put off the old, put on the new. It's not we do it one time. It is continual. It is the struggle and the battle that we face for the rest of our time here on earth. It is that sanctification. Put off the old, put on the new. Repeat. Put off, put on. That's all. Keep walking through every day like that. That is how Scripture challenges us, exhorts us to live. And today we look only at the first of these two steps what we have to do to put off. So I'm challenging you right now, if you're here today in in our service, or if you're listening at home, please come back and listen next week. Because today is only step one, which is the put off. We're going to talk about the putting off. Next week, we'll talk about the putting on. Next Sunday, we'll examine the second step, what we put on. But here's what Paul says, what the Word of God says we have to put off. Put, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, the way we were born, what we were born into, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. That's verses five through six. Everywhere in the New Testament, repeated in various ways, we find this this admonition to put off and put on. The first exhortation is always put off. If we're going to put on something, of course, then we first must put off what we have on. Think of it this way. If a parent tells their dirty and muddy child, hey, go upstairs and put on some clean clothes, the first step is to take off the dirty clothes. That is also what Scripture recognizes about us. We have formed habits that are wrong, sometimes without even realizing that they were wrong. We have allowed ourselves to take on attitudes and actions that are definitely destructive and have been making our life a mess. But once we come to a new life with Jesus, we must put off the old so that we can put on the new. And here's the beauty of it. We have Christ in you, the hope of glory, which tells us and helps us to take those old things off. We don't have to womp it up ourselves. But here in the plainest of language, Paul tells us what we must put off. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, i.e. old life. And notice that All five of these first terms have to do with our sex and with sexuality. Sex is a tremendously important part of life. It is designed by and created by God. He creates things that are amazing. And sex, biblically speaking, is like a great river flowing through life, which when it is within its banks is a source of pleasure and of power. But when it overflows its proper banks, it becomes destructive and ultimately disastrous. All that is behind the admonition to put off first all sexual immorality. That word to all forms of sexual relationships outside of the covenant marriage between a man and a woman, what is called elsewhere in scripture, adultery. 
which is any sexual behavior by a married person with someone other than their spouse. This is to be put off by all Christians. The Word of God is absolutely clear on this. There's no quibbing about these terms. It means what it says it means. They mean exactly that, to put off sexual immorality. The second word is impurity. It's the word for uncleanliness. It refers to what, in a better translation, would be called perversion. Perversion forms of sexuality. All of that would be covered in this one word, impurity. Along with these, lust is also to be put away. This refers to erotic passions which are aroused, especially with men, by things visual. Pornography clearly falls under this classification because it objectifies people for sexual gain. It belongs to the old life. It is beyond the boundaries of God's river and becomes very a very destructive thing. Evil desires is closely associated with lust. It is a mental uncleanliness. It's, it is what Jesus had in mind when he said, if a man looks after a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Lastly, we're to put off greed, which is idolatry. And when this word greed or covetousness appears in Scripture without being linked with idolatry, it is referring to avarice or the lusting after money and the things that money can buy. But in this particular contest, linked context, linked with this word, idolatry is the greed to possess another person, another person's body. That, Paul says Paul, is idolatry a powerful longing on some other person and possession of them. We would call this, in our context today, having an affair, in which we allow another person to become so dominant in our thinking that they take the place of God to us. All we have to do is listen to the words of some of the, the love songs that we know. Often they are expressing the idea of, whether they say it specifically, you are like God to me. I am looking to you to fulfill the deepest longings and the yearnings of my heart. But anyone who's lived very long knows that that, that is an impossible demand. You see, no human, not our spouse, no one can fill that need. And those who mistakenly feel that a new affair, a new love, a new relationship, something outside of these bounds is going to meet all of these hungers that their life find themselves, they find themselves again and again disillusioned and ultimately in despair. Every affair becomes less and less satisfying and ultimately you find yourself drifting aimlessly and lost. These things were as common in the first century as they are today. And Paul says that two things are wrong here that ex that in that acceptance. First, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming or keeps coming. A continuous present tense is probably a better translation in verse 6. A lot of manuscripts add the phrase, on those who are disobedient. What do, what do we think of when we hear the phrase, the wrath of God? Well, many of us think, I used to think, that it's a kind of divine temper tantrum, that God gets very angry and vindictively strikes us down in some way or another. Lightning bolts shoot from heaven, whatever. But Scripture declares that the wrath of God is simply his judicial reaction to evil. It is a way a holy God reacts to a civilization 
or an individual who turns their back on moral absolutes and tries to ignore moral law. The first chapter of Roman gives a very vivid description of what God does in such a case. He removes the restraints within society against evil and lets it have its way, allowing it to produce what evil always produces, death. In the midst of life, evil produces death. Romans 6 says the wages of sin, the payment of this sin is death. There are moral absolutes which mankind can never break with impunity. And that is what Paul is pointing out. We may think that nothing happens when we allow ourselves to fall into immoral practices, but something is happening. God has not lost his power. He is quite able to react to evil, and he does react. He allows it to have its head. He removes restraints upon the, that, the disillusion of society, and nothing man can do can prevent it. Lewis Smeads, a professor at Fuller Seminary, puts it this way. Some rules are absolute. They roll like moral thunder through the ages, down the hills of every, of every civilization and into the valleys of every culture. They hold all peoples everywhere to account, all classes, all creeds, rich or poor, ancient or modern. They come with an imperious claim to respect everywhere under all circumstances and every nook and cranny of every individual's private or public existence. The second reason that Paul gives in, is in verse 7. You used to walk in these ways and the life you once lived. If we Christians, if we believers fall into these practices, as we are doing in many ways and in many places today, we're reverting to a lifestyle which no longer reflects our true identity. You see, our predisposition, because we are all born with a predisposition of sin, but our predisposition has become our identification. But remember, we are born predisposed of sin, but God, but God, we're doing things that are no longer us. That is why walking is step one and step two, putting off and putting on, continuously repeating that process over and over and over again. In Romans 6.14, we have one of the greatest verses of scripture. Sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. Everyone knows that the Ten Commandments legislate, among other things, uh, against adultery and sexual misconduct. You shall not commit adultery, says the Seventh Commandment, while the Tenth Commandment declares you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's very plain. It's very clear. So we might be asking, uh, well, what's the difference between this kind of demand that Paul is making here when he says, put aside all of these things, and what the law says? Isn't this putting us back under the law? Illegalism? Not at all. There's a huge difference. When the law says you must not commit adultery or you must not covet your neighbor's wife, it is saying to humanity in general, you must stop even though you can't stop. Inwardly, we will fail. If not outwardly, we will fail inwardly over and over and over again. And that is what Jesus refers to on the Sermon of the Mount. The law addresses itself to an already fallen race. Man has planted in his inner life a seed of treason that he finds himself disobeying even when he wants to obey. I, why, do is it, why is it that I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do? Roughly translated. 
You see, no one can obey the law to the degree that God requires. Therefore, the only function of law is to condemn. It condemns us because we cannot, in an actual practice, in reality, stop. But that is not what Paul is saying. What he is actually pointing out in the letter is, now that we have become a Christian because of what Jesus has done, now that we are in Christ, we are no longer what we once were. Something has happened. So we must now stop because we can stop. This is what he means in Romans 6, 14, that sin shall, be, shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. We have a new resource, this new power, this new life, a strong Savior who will be with us every moment of temptation. And we can say no. And that is why we must stop. It is the difference between those under the law and those that are under grace. And going even deeper, Paul takes up some of the the inner attitudes of our lives. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these If we thought that, hey, maybe we've come safely through the first list, you know, like, hey, you're thinking to yourself, whoo, I made it. Remember what I said last week? No, we're all on the list. So you have to fasten your seatbelts because here it goes. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Notice again that we're exhorted to stop doing certain things because we can stop. We are different. Therefore, we can act differently. That is the appeal of the grace of God. We have taken off the old self. And Paul describes this earlier in his letter as being circumcised with Christ. A change has come. We are no longer what we once were. Our life is no longer linked with the old Adam, but with the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ himself. We have put on the new self, which is growing and it's increasing in knowledge. And the more we learn about this new life, the more we find we're able to say no to the old. It is it is increasing in knowledge, growing into the image of of Jesus as creator. So Paul begins this list of attitudes to renounce. First, we know no longer need to give way to anger. According to scripture, there's nothing wrong with anger itself, but here it is an expression of anger that is in its view what one commentator accurately calls impetuous name-calling or calculated insults. As a believer, we must not do that anymore. Jesus referred to this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you call your brother Raka or you fool, you are in danger of the discipline of God. That kind of behavior must go because it belongs to the old life. The second word is rage. This refers to temper tantrums, to violent display or attack by either words or by actually an action upon another person. That does not mean we will not be removed from the temptation to do these things. No, the old life still hangs on in all of these situations. But we must remember that it is no longer us. We can say no and should say no because we are new creatures in Jesus. The third word is malice. That silent, hidden hatred of the heart that takes revenge in secret. Have you ever spit in anyone's soup? either literally or figuratively. It's an act of revenge. It's inspired by malice. 
Then fourthly is slander. That's an attack on another person's character, whispering things about them, whether it's true or untrue. Whether it's true or untrue, it makes no difference. That destroys their reputation in another's eyes. That is slander. Hey, in the world and in the marketplace, we can be sued for that because even the world recognizes that it's wrong. The fifth word, the fifth word is filthy language. It's foul talk, crude, coarse words, expletives, which Jesus might, might or Christians, excuse me, might resort to in a time of sudden pain or hurt. What's the first word that I say when I hit my thumb with the hammer? We all know the temptation to do this, but it is to be put away because it's not us anymore. And I find that believers are confused as to just when they're being hypocritical. Nobody, of course, wants to be a hypocrite. But many Christians think that they are being a hypocrite when they know that inwardly they, they have evil temptations, whatever it may be, uh, all of these things that we've talked about, everything from sexual immorality to, to lying to their neighbor. We, 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 we know what we are inside, right? Even if no one else knows. But what the Bible says, however, or excuse me, this, so we have these evil temptations, but nevertheless, we go to church, we sing praise songs, we go to Bible study. But what the Bible says, however, is that a Christian is a hypocrite when they give way to those wrong things, that is when they are no longer being what they really are. That is a true definition of a hypocrite, right? We're being our true self when we praise God and respond with love, joy, and peace. That is when we are real. We are a phony or a hypocrite when we give way to evil attitudes and practices, to think about those things, to be tempted by those things, to have that struggle in our internal life is not to be a hypocrite. That is walking as a follower of Christ, putting off the old and putting on the new. Repeat, put off, put on. The sixth word is lying. Untruth that breeds suspicion, destroys trust. Perhaps we would secretly agree with a little boy who was asked what a lie was and replied, a lie is an abomination to the Lord, but a very present help in time of trouble. But we pay a terrible price for lying by destroying trust, awakening suspicion. We, we find it hard to win our way back to being trusted again. And then finally, we have this verse 11. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. If we take that from its context, it sounds like a great statement of the oneness of the body of Christ, which, of course, it is. There is a parallel verse to it in Galatians, one that is widely quoted, which includes also the distinctions of sex, neither male nor female in Christ. It's a marvelous expression of the oneness of the body. But in this particular context, dealing with putting off the expressions of the old life, this verse is saying that we can no longer excuse wrong conduct on the basis of class, of background, or origin. There is no longer to be any of that for us. We are no longer what we once were. Paul says we no longer can retreat to that kind of excuse for we are no longer what we were born to be. All such background of class, national origin, training, education, predispositions, etc. 
whatever it may be, is all set aside because we are now linked to Christ. Christ is in all, all believers, and therefore we have what it takes to say no to wrong. And as we will go on in the next week to see, to say yes to God so that our lives are filled with peace, with love, and with joy. We are filled with courage and an and a confidence that life is not repressive and dull, but it's an adventure in which we are being led in every situation, trial, hardship, or whatever the test may be to help us to learn from the one that goes with us that we are able and he can take us through. We're able to look unto Jesus. That's the exhortation everywhere in scripture. He will take us through the present trial, make it a blessing. Our sorrow, he said to his disciples, shall be turned into joy. That is how a Christian is to live, joyfully, because of this great truth. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day of the Lord should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-7. And finally, I want to close by reading 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. And God bless.